Good day, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Eric Kaufman, a professor of politics at Birkbeck University of London. He has authored books such as The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America and White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities. Thank you for coming on to the show, Eric. Great to be here, Jose. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into today's topics, could you briefly give my audience your bio and go over some of your most prominent pieces of literature? Yeah, I'm a professor of political science. Uh, I'm from Canada originally, but I've been in the UK over 25 years uh, teaching at um, part of the University of London called Birkbeck College. I've um, generally, in a lot of my work, focused on the intersection of demographic changes like immigration and ethnic change and nationalism. So that's sort of been a major interest of mine. But then also there's a third part of that, which is the intersection with uh, left-wing ideology and how these three things, nationalism, left-wing ideology, and demographic change work together. That was the theme of my first book, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, which grew out of my PhD dissertation in the late mid to late 90s. Um, and that book was published in uh, 2004. And then I, I had a number of other books, which we're probably not going to touch on, um, uh, which deal with more with religion and with other kinds of ethnic conflicts. Uh, and then most recently, White Shift, which was in, published in 2019, which very much looked at the populist moment, Brexit, Trump, uh, the rise of uh, the populist right in Europe. And that's really my latest book. And then I've since then, I've done a number of reports for places like the Manhattan Institute, Policy Exchange, CSPI on academic freedom and its the threats to it, uh, and also on the culture war uh, and aspects of it and some other topics as well. Now, I want to touch upon your book, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America. That is a very provocative title. In what ways has this so-called like white Anglo-Saxon culture declined in the U.S. based on your studies? Well, that book really looked at the 19th and early to late 20th centuries, and it really was focused on the ethnic majority group, which was were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So not not all whites, but but white Anglo Protestants as the ethnic majority, and how uh, this this majority formed, and then how it it actually went into decline as we move into the sort of second half of the twentieth uh, century. So this is before we get to the present, before we get to the. Even to the 1965 Immigration Act, which opens up the Hart Cellar Act, I was interested to know what was going on amongst intellectuals who were opposed to the Anglo-Protestant uh, dominance in the United States. So it was mainly about how you know how they managed immigration from, particularly Catholic and, and Jewish sources in Europe. And basically, the argument is that a kind of liberalism or left liberalism within uh, the intellectual elite was what ultimately led to the decline of that Anglo-Protestant dominated conception of America sort of between the 19, as early as the 1910s going, starting slowly, uh, gaining force. And then in 1965 with the Immigration Acts uh, and, and 
already by that time you had significant changes to history textbooks and schools, to the way the Democrats talked about nationhood and to all of these things. So, so already by 1965, we see a major, at least intellectual change, even if the demographic changes, you know, the demographic changes had been significant in the sense of the Anglo-Protestant share drops from, you know, what is approximately two thirds of the population at independence to about half by 1920 to even by 1950, sort of 40%, and then by sort of 1970, it's sort of in the mid-20s. So that's a significant decline, and it sort of prefigures the kind of decline of, of the white racial group as a, as a percentage of the total, which we're seeing in our present day. In this overall process of Anglo-American decline, what would you say is the ethno-religious background of the new class that governs the U.S. and also occupies key positions in business, civil society, and general culture? Well, up until, I mean, there was a a leftist writer named C. Wright Mills, and there was another uh, writer called Digby Balsu who talked about the Protestant establishment. If you watch Mad Men, the the show about uh, Madison Avenue advertising firms, you get a sense of what that was like. So really up until 1960 or even the early 60s, you know, most CEOs, the top ends of the military and uh, Congress were white Anglo-Protestants, and this was to the tune even of 80-90%. And that swiftly unravels. There was a book called The Dewasping of America by Christopher, um, and, you know, it just talks about the process between the early 60s and the late 1980s. You had a, a very rapid uh, increase in the penetration of Jewish and Catholics into those upper echelon occupations. So by the time we get to the late 80s, really, you know, you've had a major sea change in the composition of the uh, U.S. elite. Now, if you want to talk about the new class, uh, I mean, Jews had always had, had significant representation amongst American intellectuals, especially left-wing intellectuals, since I would say the 1930s. And that really continues, you know, through into the 80s, you know, up until quite recently, only recently has the Jewish share begun dropping quite significantly and quite rapidly, actually. Uh, but that's that's a phenomenon of the last sort of 10, 20 years. Um, so, yeah, you, you see that in certain sectors, the Jews had a bigger impact in intellectual artistic, creative fields, but still only ever a minority. You know, they may have reached 20% in certain, you know, Ivy League acad- academic fields. But largely what I, the way I see this is it's a Anglo-Protestant left liberals who repudiate their own tradition and their own ethnic group is the main, that's kind of the main force. They detach themselves from that to pursue certain kinds of secular religions, I guess, as their dominant identities. Yeah, that's sort of the process as I see it. This leads to another point that I'd like to see you expand upon, because in contrast to the more like Anglo-American dominated U.S., there are definitely different sets of values and political philosophies that elites held. What values would you say not just like the 20th century ruling class, but also the current ruling class holds that would be considered foreign to the more Anglo-dominated elites of like the 19th century and the start of the 20th century? Yeah, I mean, what you see is this really sudden change amongst a lot of U.S. elites, mainly Anglo-Protestant elites, between about, 
after 1910, the, the, the elite of the mainline Protestant denominations say in 1905 they would have still been talking about the dangers of the saloon and drink, worried about Catholicism and the growth of the Catholic Church, worried about immigration. By 1910, they're starting to be influenced by new, the new liberal progressive movement around people like John Dewey and Jane Addams. And they are starting to become cosmopolitan. The ecumenical movement is starting to talk about, you know, we got to reach out to Catholics and Jews. This starts to take off pre-World War One, And really, by the time we're through World War One, it, it, it is becoming becoming more and more the establishment point of view during the 20s and the 30s. So this is happening well before our time. This foundation of pluralist left liberal intellectualism is being laid down. And then we have the war. This left liberal intellectualism rejects both communism and fascism and comes out kind of victorious, a kind of anti-communist left. Left liberalism is the dominant ideology of the elites. And that is very hostile to nationalism. It's very pro-immigration. And what then happens is, I guess, what we would call cancel culture or, you know, you already had by the 1910s and 20s quite a strong tradition of being anti-WASP, you know, seeing the Anglo-Protestant tradition as boring, repressive. They don't drink, they don't dance, they're not very fun. And, and that that sort of tradition carries through into the 1950s. If you read some of the beat writers, you get that same vibe. Uh, you know, this is a square, boring culture. But then in the 60s, what we get in the 60s is a much stronger anti-white edge, building, of course, on that earlier anti-WASP tradition, but, but something which is much more, whereas the earlier uh, tradition is what I would call modernist. It was kind of playful. It was about, oh, WASPs are boring. Post-1960s, it was like, oh, whites, like if you Susan Sontag has a quote, 1966, you know, whites are cancer on the human race. And, and you get a much more kind of political, uh, something that's very recognizable to most of us today, this sort of, this idea of oppressor oppressed being, it's talking about identity groups, I, oppressed identity groups, that, that comes in strongly in the late 60s. But it builds on this earlier tradition at, that it goes right back to the 1910s. So what I'd say is this kind of like a slow process, which then scales up in the 60s. And, and then we're living through that process of largely quantitative change. There's not that many new ideas. I would argue it's mainly about a scaling up of ideas that were already there. Of those modernists that were trying to stir the pot and criticize the traditional Anglo-Saxon culture in the uh, U.S., did any of them come to regret like the excesses of like the 1960s when they if like they lived to see that? Because it, I kind of get the impression there is like a Frankenstein's monster effect when some of these people introduce ideas that kind of like get out of control and cannot be like no longer contained. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it sort of reminds me of sort of Frank Sinatra, you know, and others criticizing rock and roll. You know, they were kind of part of this rebellious jazz culture, you know, jazz culture, and they kind of 
were then critical of rock and roll for being really kind of, you know, uh, under undermining morals. And, 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 you know, you had a kind of, you know, with the a lot of the um, earlier 60s left, some of them have shifted to the right with the student revolts and the student movement. So the student revolts, which were very irrational and very kind of using mob force and not very intellectual, those were criticized by some of these earlier left-wing intellectuals. You know, some of the Frankfurt School, I don't know if you may have heard this about this group, uh, people like um, Theodore Adorno, they were talking about, or, or Jürgen Habermas, they were talking about left-wing fascists, and they were talking about the student rioters and revolts as being this, this. So they were quite critical of the, and similarly, the New York intellectuals in the United States you know, some of those people moved to the right, like Daniel Bell and Nathan Glazer, but you know, they were very critical of the student revolts as well for, for being destructive, unintellectual, and so on. So yeah, there was that criticism. You know, I haven't seen too many specifically around this ethnic issue. I have, I mean, there's an interesting book called Strangers in the Land, which I guess you could call a kind of liberal cosmopolitan book about American immigration that talks glowingly about what a shame it was that the U.S. closed its its immigration in 1924 with the uh, Johnson-Reed Act and looking nostalgically back at the pre-1924 period, uh, a guy called John Hyam, a historian. In subsequent books, he then really, I won't know, I won't say he laments his earlier book, but he sort of is very critical of the people who've taken his book and run with it, saying that they've you know, he said, oh, my book was a liberal book. It wasn't a radical one. And, you know, people aren't paying any attention to the need to construct and mold an American nationality. It's all about multiculturalism. And so you do have, a, I almost would say, a kind of a, a lament or a regret from, from him as well. So, yeah, I, I think you do see it in some places amongst some individuals. Definitely. Now, I'm just wondering because you do. I, I've seen some of your work um, on on Herd and other publications, and you cover like the situation in other countries. Is this decline in Anglo culture also prevalent in the rest of the Anglosphere, namely Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the UK, for example? Yes and no. I would say that it happens later in those countries. So if you take Canada, for example, English Canada, cities like Vancouver and Toronto would be, you know, at the time, the, you know, cities like New York and and uh, Chicago would have had only maybe 10 or 15 percent Anglo-Protestant, uh, you know, in the early 20th century. Cities like Vancouver and Toronto would have, would have been three quarters Anglo-Protestants, uh, you know, and, and really it wasn't until we get into the 1950s that you start to see first some Catholic immigration from places like Italy, but, you know, resisted in a way. So there were these restrictions. The, the immigration flow in Australia, New Zealand, Canada was just a lot more British uh, for longer. But once the sort of barriers come down the way they did in the U.S., the change is pretty rapid. And now Australia, New, you know, New Zealand and Canada, I think, like the U.S., are going to be are heading towards a kind of majority minority around 2050, even though Canada right now is still maybe a little over 75 percent white. But it was sort of maybe 98 percent white as recently as, let's say, mid-1960s. So you've gone from 98 to maybe 77. 
at a time the U.S. went from 85 to 62 or something. But but the, the rate of change is probably faster, I'd say, in Canada and New Zealand than it is in the U.S. So, yeah. And then in Britain, too, same sort of – I mean, you, you had very limited immigration actually in Britain let's say, from the late 1960s until 1997, when the Tony Blair Labour government comes in. Uh, but that's really changed since 97, and we've had now a solid 20 years uh, or thereabouts, getting on 20 years of reasonably high immigration. So Britain, too, like the rest of Europe, is going through this change. It's going to be the, the majority-minority point will be, you know, end of the century rather than mid-century. But, it, you know, you're seeing similar trends happening it's just slightly different speeds. Yeah. Would you say like one of the primary differences between like the U.S. and the rest of the Anglosphere is that the U.S. tends to have like a much more expressive individualism while the rest of the Anglosphere tends to still have like residual amounts of communitarianism in terms of how like their societies are structured and the way people relate to the state? Uh, it's a difficult question. I mean... I don't think the differences are, are as large as you think they are. I think that these are all individualistic societies. Now, like in Canada, where I'm from, maybe that individualism may take the form of saying, well, maybe I'm better off with more, more government because that is going to be a better deal for me. But it's still basically individuals calculating what's a good deal for them. And the morality is, is also based around a sort of individualistic, what Jonathan Haidt would call an individualistic moral foundation in Western countries. So it would be all about, okay, well, we, we, we want to protect individuals and we want to redistribute from certain individuals to other individuals, but it's not really grounded in national tradition or custom. That's not the real reason that there is redistribution. It's all justified on the basis of these sort of egalitarian, universalist, cosmopolitan, moral logic. So I don't think the individualism is is that radically different as you go between, say, Europe, Canada, U.S. Um, no, I, I think it's the pull of tradition is in some ways a little bit stronger in parts of the U.S. certainly than Canada, I'd say. Canada has the weakest tradition. Probably Australia and New Zealand also have reasonably shallow sort of their histories aren't very long. They haven't inculcated a lot of attachments. I'd say the U.S., there's probably more inculcation of, of certain kinds of attachments to the past. I know it's not particularly strong. In Europe, there is a probably stronger tie to the past. There's a weaker immigration tradition, but still, I, I'd still say these are all kind of individualistic societies. You've mentioned several public policies and that's been like one of my focus, especially the 1960s, because it's one of the more pivotal decades as far as monumental legislation is concerned, because you have like the civil rights revolution take place and the aforementioned passage of the Hart Seller Act. Are there any other decades that you believe were just as crucial in terms of policies passed and also the crystallization of like multicultural ideas and modernist ideas? Well, I think you had the left liberal intellectuals were already sort of on board with a kind of cosmopolitan left liberalism by the by the 1910s and, and 20s, you know, so it's, well, by the 1910s, I would say, which is really when multiculturalism emerges as an idea. Randolph Bourne is, is the key figure 
not so much Horace Callan, a contemporary of his who he borrowed a lot of ideas from, but but Randolph Bourne, I think, is key. He was a member of the bohemian set known as the young intellectuals that um, were modernist intellectuals, modernist avant-garde that were in Greenwich Village at the time. I think that's sort of the origin of all this. I think American, a lot of American intellectuals are very much into cosmopolitanism, a kind of repudiation of the WASP nature of America uh, quite early on. But the the mainstream political parties, the mainstream institutions, the newspapers, and none of these institutions were really that influenced by these radical intellectuals, I, I would argue. I mean, yes, there were some best-selling books uh, like Sinclair Lewis's uh, Main Street sold two million copies. There were some influential books, but still their influence on the on politics is, is remarkably thin. I, as, as I look at it, they didn't really have much impact on, you know, so you had the, if you look at immigration, for example, the 1924 Act, you know, pretty impervious to the liberal, progressive, ecumenical, Protestant arguments, even though those arguments were made by these intellectuals and by these liberal churchmen. They had very little cut through. Now, you fast forward to 1952, you're starting to see a little bit more of a penetration of those cosmopolitan ideas into segments, particularly of the Democratic Party and also of the sort of business wing of the Republican Party. People like Wendell Wilkie, uh, as an example, these kind of Rockefeller Republican types. And so they play an important role, I think, but they're still not able to overturn the, you know, the 1952 McCarran-Walter Act really reaffirms much of what was there in 1924 with slight exceptions. So there was the ban on uh, immigration from East Asia is lifted. Very small numbers are allowed in, very, very small numbers. In 1956 with Cuban uh, revolution and in Hungary as well, some immigration is allowed in outside the uh, sort of national quotas. These are exceptions, and and in a way, but but it did show that there was more pressure on the uh, on the National Origins Quota Immigration Act coming already in the fifties. So you see certain kinds of liberalization. Truman is pushing hard for a colorblind kind of immigration policy, uh, using logic like saying, "Well, uh, we have the Statue of Liberty saying, send you know, send me your tired," and 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 all of which, by the way. The poem under the Statue of Liberty had been put there in the 1930s, reinterpreted between the 30s and the 50s. School textbooks were already being subtly shifted to try and include immigrant contributions in this period. So things were happening, I would say, within the school system and within the Democratic Party. So it was already some pressure being brought to bear. And if you look at public opinion on immigration, it was starting to shift in this period between the 50s and 1965, um, which then um, then makes it possible to have the immigration reforms. So I do think there were some things that were already happening in the 50s. It wasn't a sudden shift. It's not all about the 60s. It was, it was already beginning in the, in the 50s. All right. Now, I've argued that mass migration is one of the holy sacraments of the present managerial order. And in your estimation, do you view all of the policies passed after the Hart-Seller Act as the primary drivers of identitarian anxieties across the West? Uh, yeah, essentially the ethnic change is the number one factor, I would argue. Groups that are of significant distance from the 
dominant ethnic groups in, in various countries, if they are migrating in sufficient numbers, that ethnic change really, I think, is key for understanding the rise of the populist right. If you look at almost any successful major populist right party or movement in Europe, or if you look at the Trump, the case of Trump, or or in, in now in Canada with the People's Party, I mean, yes, views on immigration are the number one predictor of whether somebody is going to vote for one of these parties. So in an election in Germany and Bavaria, the alternative for Germany, they did a, an exit poll, 100% of AFD voters in Bavaria said, agreed with the state, but Germany is gradually losing its culture. Sweden Democrat voters, 99% wanted less immigration. I mean, this is almost complete, you know, you could almost call these anti-immigration parties. It's not that simple, but similarly, by the way, in the the case of Trump, if you were to predict uh, who went for Trump in the 2015 primaries, and and also in the 2016 election, um, you know, immigration is absolutely critical uh, for understanding uh, who who goes over to Trump. So, yeah, I'd say this is this is really central, and, and all the studies on immigration attitudes show that it's primarily about uh, psychology and culture. So, your views on the death penalty are a you know far better predictor of your views on immigration um, than, for example. Anything about your economic status, whether you're rich, poor, lost a job, uh, so on, that that almost doesn't matter. I mean, it matters very little. So it's primarily cultural and psychological. Are there any countries that you've studied in the West that tend to have populist movements that are more, quote unquote, class reductionist? Or are they like universally much more identitarian in terms of their ethos? Well, uh, if you're talking about the left-wing populism or, or, or more the national right-wing populism, uh, if it's the right-wing populism, it's, I cannot think, the, you know, it's almost all identity-based. Now, it is the case that, for example, in Canada, the, the People's Party did draw a lot on the uh, COVID issue. In it, you know, It's a complicated picture there, but by and large, most of these parties have not been the libertarian COVID type or or anti-climate change type. You know, that's not been a major draw. I mean, any of the ones that have actually, certainly the ones that have broken into double digits, it's all been on the identity-based, uh, you know, concern over immigration. And, and even, even terrorism and crime, I would say, are secondary to concerns over immigration in general, which is, I would say, is linked heavily into culture and psychology. With Brexit and the election of Trump in 2016, it's clear that populism is a major force in the West, despite like some of the roadblocks and that they face in the intervening years that a lot of these parties have faced. Do you believe that these movements will fully replace traditional center-right parties that tend to be universalist in orientation? Or will they be co-opted or defanged in the long term? Well, I think what the process you see is one of, you know, the populist parties doing quite well, surging during periods of rapid migration, like the 2015 European migrant crisis. And what then happens is that the center-right parties try and co-opt. They're all pushed to the right on immigration. So the Swedish moderates, for example, they refuse to talk about immigration levels. Suddenly they start talking about immigration levels. 
Similarly with people like, you know, if you take Mark Rutte in the Netherlands, similarly trying to appeal to here at Wilders voters, um, you see the Conservative Party here in Britain trying to appeal to Brexit voters. So there is a co-optation process. But what I would say is if you, if you have a party that co-opts voters, they can do that if they really do sort of promise to handle the issues that populist voters are concerned about. But if they then subsequently don't deliver, the populist party is going to be right back. So part of what happens in Britain is David Cameron talks about reducing immigration to the tens of thousands, fails to do so. And that is what provides the opening for UKIP to come in on 13% of the vote in 2015. But that's kind of an example of, of what I mean is, is that you have this the co-optation can happen. So what's happened now in Britain is you have had the Conservatives getting the Brexit vote, but they've actually not delivered on a lot of the issues those Brexit voters care about. And so they've now created the conditions, I think, for another populist emergence. It's just a question of when that happens, I think. But in other cases, like in France, you know, or in Italy, the populists really do decimate the established right and become the new opposition. And and I think that's also a pattern we see. So it can, it can kind of happen either way. Oh, Hungary might be another, perhaps seen as another example of that. But yeah, you can get the center-right co-opting. I think Austria, we're seeing a bit of that as well. And Sebastian Kurz in Austria was, was trying to do that, talking tough. You know, you even saw, even left-wing parties can do that co-opting. Uh, in, in Denmark, that's what's happened. Um, where you really, but they really have instituted a really tough regime in terms of immigration and integration. So, so I think they can't, you know, centrist parties can do it successfully, but also they can fail to do it as well. And I think, you know, here in Britain, what's happened is the, the way the Tory party selects MPs essentially favors highly educated economic liberals. And so they, even though they did go for Brexit, they didn't really do Brexit in a way that the Brexit voters wanted them to do it. And so I think they're vulnerable, again, to a populist movement. All things considered, what would you say are the largest obstacles right-wing populist parties will be facing in the next decade or so? Well, okay, it just depends. I think what's happened is we've had a succession of major, very unusual crises. The COVID, uh, epi- COVID pandemic first and now we've got the cost of living in the Ukraine uh, crisis. Now, those crises actually make it harder for populist parties to do well because people look to technocrats and experts during something like a pandemic where they want to be protected from uh, a threat and they need, you know, they need people who are who are experts or, or perhaps the economy and managing the economy. Whenever that the economy is a big issue, uh, right-wing populism doesn't do as well Generally, that's been the recent trend. So prior to 2016, uh, the economy was a lower priority for voters, which allowed some of these cultural issues to rise. And I I would expect after the current crisis, the, the Ukraine and the economic inflation, all this sort of stuff, if that does fade, then I would expect uh, populists to start to do better than they have been doing. Although, having said that, they've not been doing badly at all. I mean, you've probably seen the result in Sweden, where Sweden Democrats, um, you know, who are in the right-wing coalition and had 
over 20%, sort of a, a record showing. Uh, France, um, uh, Marine Le Pen did, did very well there as well, even though she didn't win. So uh, we're seeing Italy as well. So we've seen a number of different countries where the populist numbers might have gone down a little bit, but they haven't, in some cases, they've gone up. They certainly haven't lost position. And so I, I think when we move out of the kind of current crisis where people are worried more about material things, and once they start thinking more about longer term cultural issues, then I think populist parties are going to start to rise again. Yeah, the Ukraine point you mentioned is interesting. Do you believe that the emergence of a geopolitical rival like, say, Russia, China or a combination of that type of axis, would that give more breathing room to establishment parties to swoop right in? try to like unite the country and push populists to the side? Yeah, I think so. I think that foreign policy threats and military style nationalism, which is outward focused, does have that kind of bipartisan uniting effect. And it, it gives a bigger, you know, more prominent role to state institutions like the military. And so it would weaken, you know, national populism. National populism is fundamentally a kind of ethno-traditional nationalism seeking to protect and revive the particularity of nations and also oriented heavily against uh, liberal cosmopolitan or, or radical left internal competitors, if you like, who have a different vision of the nation. So it's, just, it's, a, it's a certain assertion of a more traditionalist vision of the nation against the more liberal cosmopolitan version of the nation uh, promoted by uh, the left liberal or, or elite culture. Whereas if you then get a war, that then brings to the fore a more of a sort of, uh, if you like, missionary, civic type nationalism, which, which I would have thought would weaken the populist right. I mean, we've seen evidence of that in the past as well. You know, when anti-Catholic populism in Scotland, and I'm just taking one example, you know, in the, in the interwar period, that was a very strong movement. Second World War largely takes a lot of the steam, you know, out of that movement. And, and similarly, you could even make the argument in the U.S. that World War II plays a major role in, in plays some role anyhow in reducing anti-Catholicism and, and to some extent anti-Semitism, or, or at least certainly the notion of this idea that this religious divides are, are the main axis of politics or a critical axis, that really sort of ebbs during World War II as, as you have this sort of multi-religious military and, and an external enemy. So yeah, external enemies do lead to, I would argue, a decline in national populism. Unless, of course, you lose the war, then that's different. But I'm just saying, as long as it's a conflict that you are not losing, then I would say that this actually weakens national populism. Yeah, that reminds me, I believe it was uh, Jose Ortega that said that after Spain lost the Spanish-American War, it's when you really saw separatism kick off in earnest. These, those were like very weak movements prior, but after that massive military reversal, that's when, um, he, based on his observations, Spain started to witness that. And to your point about interwar U.S., I also think like World War II was pretty instrumental in terms of undermining like the America First movement of that time, which was gaining a lot of steam 
And there were other uh, weird populist movements taking place around that time. But after Pearl Harbor, you saw a big rally around the flag effect that put a knife in a lot of those movements altogether. Yeah. I mean, I do think, though, that the... uh you know, the Immigration Act of 1924 did take a lot of the steam, uh, you know, a lot of the wind out of the sails of, let's say, Anglo-Protestant nationalism, because they'd, between that and the prohibition of alcohol, which was directed mainly against Catholics uh, in the cities, they'd had some major legislative successes. And then you had the Great Depression, which was an economic issue. And that then takes a lot of the energy and focus away from, you know, the threat of Catholicism, let's say. And, And so... I don't think you could say that Anglo-Protestant ethno-nationalism was at a sharp ebb in the U.S. pre-World War II. So, whereas I think in Scotland, the anti-Catholicism was a, a very, quite a strong force. You know, those parties were winning a third of the vote and that kind of thing. So I think in the U.S., you, you had developments that had weakened, sort of weakened the kind of sectarian politics uh, already. But let's just say that the view that Catholics and Jews were sort of less American, you know, and I, I suppose anti-Semitism lasted, was there in the 1930s. Anti-Catholicism had probably waned a bit, although Catholics were still sort of not seen as American. I think as FDR once told one of his Irish Catholic aides that, you know, look, this is a Protestant country and, you know, that kind of, so there, so there was a degree to which I think after World War II, you had more of a sense that, Ah, you know, they were as American and you had new neighborhoods popping up, the Levitt towns that were, uh, you know, a mix of Protestant, Catholic and, and, and Jewish. That was kind of new in the in the movies, also uh, portrayal and in novels, there was more of a, a portrayal of eth- eth- white ethnics as more, more equals, not just sidekicks. Yeah, I think that all of these processes were accelerated by the war, but I wouldn't say there was a some kind of fascism or, or kind of very strong populist movement in the 30s prior to the war, no. If mass migration trends continued combined with the consolidation of wokeism, if you will, as the ruling ideology, where do you see the collective West heading? Is it heading towards more of a kind of like post-national authoritarianism or is balkanization in the cards? Well, okay, so what we have are two things. I mean, we've got the ethnic change uh, and the immigration issue. And what you have is people have different responses to that based on their psychological makeup. Uh, The order-seeking part of the population and the the part of the population that wants the present to be more like the past reacts against that change supporting national populism. Now, what we've seen is what is layered onto that, a second order moral conflict between the people who say, well, you can't want less immigration or a slowing of it, or you're a racist. And the other side saying, you just called me a racist. You've defamed me and people like me. And so you're now into a sort of second debate, which is a, a kind of a debate over morals and values, not necessarily over immigration. They're, they're both happening at once, but the one is layered on the other. And so what you've now got since, particularly since Trump and and Brexit, is this tit for tat where one side is accusing the other of racism. The other is essentially saying, you know, these people hate us and they're out of control. They are completely irrational. Uh, Look at what they're doing on campus and so on. 
you know, the trans issue, the statue toppling, uh, the, the, the cancel culture, all of that. And so that then creates a kind of ratcheting dynamic. We can see it in, in newspapers, for example. The, if you look at the content of the output of newspapers, you can see a huge increase uh, in culture war terminology. Both the left-wing terms such as racist, white supremacist, uh, transphobe, etc., and the right-wing terms such as uh, social justice warrior, woke, etc. So that's building on top. Now, what I would say is that the that second process, this culture war, if you like, is most advanced in the United States, and it's but but it's coming in Britain, and it's already playing a role, starting to play a role in politics here, which is unprecedented. But it's not yet at the level it is in, in America. What I would say is that these... Now, the, the other thing about the culture war is, you know, with immigration, you have, depending on the society, sort of maybe between 40 and 60% wanting less immigration in a country. Maybe it goes to 70 in some cases, but whereas with, if you take the culture war issues... On almost every culture war issue, it's about two to one against what I would call the cultural socialist position. So the support for cultural socialism or what you might call social justice ideology is, is generally no more than about a third. So this is, this is generally quite unpopular, uh, as are certain positions like affirmative action generally unpopular. So what I would say is in a way that the way I see that playing out is, and, and, and what you see is even the sort of more liberal business wing, if you like, of the uh, of the right, the libertarian side, they generally are also anti-woke. So uh, you've got this coalition of the national populace and the kind of libertarian classical liberal right are both united, even with segments of the left in opposing this. So it's actually quite popular. It's just that the the political parties haven't yet figured out a way to, to, to instrumentalize this effectively. But I think the, the way I would imagine this going forward is this will become a bigger and bigger part of the conservative parties. And the left is going to be forced very much onto the defensive on this issue to try and pretend like critical race isn't being taught in schools or cancel culture is not a problem on campus. But that facade really can't be kept up in, in the face of you know quite strong and repeated evidence. So I think that will simply lead to the left being in trouble electorally, generally. And it's also going to map onto national populist parties' appeals because they're going to be going double barrels, one on the uh, immigration issue, the second on the culture wars. And I think that's going to be quite an effective appeal. Against that, of course, you have less popular policies on the right. You might have, you know, Trump you know, and he, he, he's seen as erratic and not respecting democratic norms or issues like abortion, you know, or on COVID. Some of these issues, the right is, has organized lobbies, which, which are pushing policies, which are generally not that popular in the electorate. So it just depends which faction kind of gets control. If you get, if it's Ron DeSantis style conservatism, I think that is the potential to be very popular. The, the question is only going to be how much these other issues that are less popular uh, are pushed up by activists on the right. And, and that could then affect, I think, the right's electoral fortunes. All fascinating stuff. And I believe that'll be all for today. Eric, thank you so much for coming on. What is the best way for my audience to follow your work? 
Well, yeah, you can um, you can come to my website, which is snaps, S-N-E-P-S dot net, um, and you can link to my books and all my articles and, and clips of any interviews uh, and articles I write uh, there. Or you can just follow me on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. It's E-P-K-A-U-F-M. And you can find, uh, you know, I tweet out whatever I do there as well. Thank you so much. And to my audience, thank you again for your time and attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.